But Bible study is going to actually help us if we're willing to hear and respond to God and see that we can only actually have life in Jesus Christ. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 53rd episode of Working with the Word. We're glad that you're here today. We're also excited about starting a new section of the Gospel of John. So far, we've gone through John chapters 1 through 4, where Jesus has very private, intimate, one-on-one conversations with people. But in chapter 5, we see kind of a shift to Jesus is going to become more public, and he's going to be looking more broadly to the general public. We also see a new phase in Jesus' ministry where he starts experiencing persecution for his signs and his teachings, particularly after what he does in chapter 5, healing the lame man on the Sabbath day. Now, one quick note before we go any further, because the next few chapters are quite lengthy, we're not going to read the whole chapter at the beginning of each episode like we've done previously. So we want to encourage you to read the text before proceeding. You can go back to last week's episode, episode 52, to hear us read chapters 5 through 8, or just hit pause here and read on your own. But please don't skip the reading of the text, because that's the most important step in Bible study, even more important than listening to today's episode. So as we get into chapter 5 here, because we're not reading, let's start with a really quick summary of what's going on here. So what's what's happening here? We're breaking this chapter down into three sections, verses 1 through 15, verses 16 through 30, and then verse 31 through verse 47. We'll just go ahead and summarize what we're seeing in these first 15 verses as Jesus is performing his third sign. Remember, John is writing with that big theme of Jesus did many other signs that aren't recorded in his gospel, but those are recorded so that you and I, the readers of John's gospel, would believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. Then by believing in his name, we would have eternal life. That's a paraphrase or summary of John chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31. So this sign we have of a man who's been lame for 38 years, and Jesus heals him. Here's a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. We, With that number like that, it seems to maybe be implied that it hasn't been his whole life, but for a large part of his life, probably, he's been unable to walk. But Jesus just says a few words like, get up. And then the man gets up and walks away. And there's all of this tensions around the fact that this is happening on a Sabbath day. There's things going on in this section as far as there's just strange happenings as to what's the source of this scene of this man at this pool and what's going on with that. So what are some things that you're noticing or thinking about here in these first few verses with this, with this third sign? Yeah, so kind of to set the stage, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda, which means house of mercy. Interestingly, you see Jesus showing mercy to this man, but but there's a lot of sick people there. They're, they're gathered around the pool because of, of uh, what the text in some translations have in verses 3 and 4. There's this legend about the angel stirring up the water, and we'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus picks out this one man and asks him, do you want to get well? And so that's the first thing that stands out to me is 
there's a lot of sick people here, but he doesn't heal anybody else but this one man. And so there's something that he wants to highlight about this particular gentleman that he is going to do this miracle for. So like Emerson mentioned, we're here in Jerusalem. There's some feast going on. We're not told what feast that is, but Jesus is here in Jerusalem as he would be expected to as a man who's celebrating these feasts of the Jews. He's there participating in this feast. And he comes to this pool, Bethesda, a place where Jesus is going to show mercy to this man. But if you listen to our reading, or if you did your reading of chapter 5, if you maybe read from the Christian Standard Bible, or there might even be some other translations, you might have noticed that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, let's briefly talk about that real quick, because the end of verse 3 and verse 4 say some things that sound really interesting. I mean, you have, here's an angel, and he touches water, and when the water stirs up, that means someone's going to get healed. And so thus, that's why we have this group of people who come together. And even that idea is acknowledged in verse 7, where you have the disabled man talking about the fact that the water is stirred up, and I'm coming here, but there are so many other people here that I just never make it in time into the water. So verse 4, simply we're just saying, what about verse 4? More of this is going to be talked about when we get to chapter 8, because there's another section in John's Gospel which has some of the similar idea of it's either omitted, or maybe you might notice verse 3 and verse 4, at least part of verse 3 is in brackets, or has some type of asterisk, something that's going to hopefully the editors and the translators have pointed this out to you to say there needs to be some points made about this verse. As far as those translators or editors have made a personal choice based on the textual evidence from the thousands of manuscripts and translations we have available of the New Testament. So that's either in original Greek or whether that's in Latin or other older languages from centuries ago. And from the majority of those oldest, that being the closest to the original documents which we no longer possess. So like the original copy of John, we don't have that, but we have copies of John that go back to maybe the middle of the second century or even into the third century, things very close to that first century writing of John. The majority of those older documents do not include verse 4. And so some versions like the Christian Standard Bible choose to completely omit this verse, not because they're trying to change doctrine. You know, sometimes we see versions of the Bible that don't have verses. We think, oh no, they're trying to pull a fast one on. That's not what's happening. This is based upon textual criticism, things that I don't have all of the knowledge to get into right now, but enough to say they're doing it based on what they feel is most appropriate from that textual evidence. Other versions will put verses in brackets or asterisks like we talked about a second ago, but even if it's not in the original text, it does provide some background to the legend, as the word we're using, of this angel. And I think verse 5 through verse 9 is really where the interesting and important material happens. Here you have this man who's been disabled for 38 years. Think about that. That's longer than I've been alive so far in my life. That may be half of your lifetime or over half of your lifetime for some of you who are listening right now, or maybe even longer than you've been alive too. And Jesus, like you said, out of all the people who would be by this pool waiting for the waters to be stirred up so they could go and be healed, Jesus sees this one guy, and it somehow knows that he has been a long time without being able to walk. And so he picks this guy and Jesus asks Jesus questions and says, do you want to get well? 
I mean, he does kind of get to the point as, a, as opposed to maybe some other places where like the woman at the well, he starts out with talking about I'm thirsty and then gets to other things. Here he gets right to, hey, would you like me to heal you? But you got to think if you're that guy, you're almost maybe kind of looking around. Is Jesus talking to me? Like, mm-hmm. is he talking? Of course I want to be healed, right? And I think that verse seven is just, to me, I read it with a sense of despair and hopelessness, yeah. just kind of this, I've waited for so long for this to happen, but someone always gets there like right before me. You know, I think about if this was a, a movie or something, there'd be maybe a montage of flashbacks of here's this guy, you know, you see him at his younger stages, maybe a middle age, maybe even older, just this montage of him over and over again, trying to get to that pool, you know, maybe dragging himself or something and somebody else just kind of slips in. They kind of cannonball right over him or something like that. It would be maybe a, a comedic, but yet a very tragic and sad moment. And he's thinking for 38 years, I've been trying to get well, but it's just never worked out. Yeah, so you definitely see the despair and the hopelessness in his words when he says, sir, I've got no one to put me in the pool. And every time I get try to get down there, someone gets there before me. It's kind of like, there's no hope for me at this point. What What can you possibly do to help me right now? And so what's Jesus going to do to help him? He's going to say, get up. Two words. I mean, he's going to continue to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Within just those few words, and there are the, some of these things, some of these moments in the text that aren't given to us. I mean, was that really all the conversation? You just have it starting with, do you want to get well? This man's response. Jesus just saying these few words. And this man just complying. If that really is all that's happening there, and I think that there's no reason to not believe that, Jesus confidently tells this man, get up and walk. And this man trust in Jesus enough to try. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times do you think he's tried pushing up with his arms? What do you think he feels when he pushes up and all of a sudden his knee bends so he can put his foot under him? And it's just mm-hmm. kind of like, whoa, what in the world? And here we don't have any of the crazy, like he got up and jumped for joy. I think that's maybe implied in the text. If you haven't walked for 38 years and you start walking again, there's probably some jumping that's going on mm-hmm. as well. So instantly... I like to think about that as there's that finger snap of just, and as long as it takes for me to snap my fingers, not that Jesus had to do that or that he did that here. That man gets up and walks and takes his mat and walks away. But the end of verse 9 throws a little bit more of some of the, the tension into the story here where this happens on the Sabbath day, which, I mean, I'm sure people walked on Saturdays. It wasn't like all of a sudden this man was walking, so that was crazy. But what is it that the the Jews say to him there in verse 10? Yeah, they say, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And I think what they're saying to him is not just that he's walking, but he's carrying his bed like a mat. And And so under the old law, working was prohibited. And that was typically applied to things like that you would do on a normal workday, harvesting, planting, that kind of thing. But what the Jews had done um, over the centuries after Moses was had developed so many traditions and additional applications of that, that they had basically taken their traditions and their oral law that they had passed down from the elders and made it into law. And Jesus really highlights that in some of the other gospels 
how the, the disciples are walking through a grain field and they're hungry. They pick out pick up some of the grain field, rub it in their hands, and the Pharisees get all concerned about that because they're they're harvesting on the Sabbath day. And so what, what the Jews are saying is that, you know, this man is carrying a burden on the Sabbath day, which in their tradition was prohibited, this specific kind of action. And they completely miss the point that, hey, here's a man that was lame. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden he's walking and able to carry his mat. Do you see something wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. And so you, you see their, their hardline tradition, but you also see kind of their blindness here. Yeah. And we'll get more into this idea about God in the Sabbath here in a second. But obviously the Jews believe that God Sabbathed or God rested on the seventh day, but yet he still was involved in sustaining and maintaining Mm -hmm. literally everything in the universe. And so they had a concept of, yes, God is resting, but God is also working at the same time. Now that concept is important as we're going to move into talking about Jesus here in just a second. But we do want to think about this follow-up that happens. You know, they ask him, who is it that made you well? And the man says, well, I don't know. I guess he never asked Jesus his name. Remember, this was not that he could have just like gone through Instagram or Facebook. He couldn't have just gone through and said, oh, hey, this picture of this guy, that's the person there. Or wouldn't have seen on the news, Roman official's son healed or water turned to wine by Jesus and them showing a picture of him. So for some reason, he doesn't recognize Jesus and Jesus confronts him and says, hey, you're doing well. You're looking good. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. So maybe this sin causes disability. Uh, I've seen some people say there's a possibility for that. You know, if you've been only lame for 38 years, maybe you were, you know, intoxicated while operating a horse or something like that and led to some accident that caused you to become paralyzed. There's more about that idea about disabilities or the situations of our lives connected to sin later on. But it Mm -hmm. seems to me most likely... It's this idea of your physical disease was terrible. What's going on with you physically was bad. But don't sin and face the worst consequence of spiritual death, of spiritual judgment and consequences and separation from me. And so this man then goes on and tells others about what Jesus has done. He goes and tells the religious leaders who confronted him earlier. It reminds me a lot of some things we see in John chapter 9, but... There's a whole bunch of other parallels from John chapter 9 to this as well. We'll probably say those for when we get to that chapter, though, for the time being. But here's Jesus' third sign, and it's definitely getting to be more public. It's not just him and a few people at a wedding. It's not just him and an official and the servants of the official who are at the official's house and his son. Here you have other people who are involved and other people who are starting to become more hostile to Jesus. And that really leads us into that next section. So as we get to Jesus then, and seeing how they're treating Jesus, that hostility towards Jesus, starting in verse 16, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing signs or works or healings on the Sabbath day. That's consistent. That tracks through all of the Gospels, even mm-hmm. the other Gospels outside of John. But then Jesus has this remark in verse 17. I don't know if this is meant to be a slap in the face, it kind of comes across that way, where he says, my father is still working, and I am working also. And other gospels, like Emerson talked about a moment ago, when 
the disciples were plucking grain heads and then rubbing them in their hand and eating from that. Jesus will call himself the Lord of Sabbath. And he's making a comparison here to what they understood about God. Yes, God rested, but God was also working. And Jesus says, my father is working, and so I'm going to do works too. And so the next level of hostility comes from the fact of not just he's doing things on the Sabbath, but he's calling himself God as well. Yeah, just one quick thing to, to kind of supplement that. What, what the Sabbath day was all about was resting and restoration. And so you mentioned the other Gospels. Jesus does so many miracles on the Sabbath day. And when we were planning this episode, we kind of were talking about why Jesus did that. Was he doing that just to kind of get under their skin? And, and maybe there's a little bit of that, trying to highlight their misunderstanding of the Sabbath day and the traditions. But the Sabbath day was the perfect day. It was the most fitting, most appropriate time for Jesus to heal because the Sabbath was about resting with God. And if we're not able to rest with God, to have restoration so that we can rest with God. And so what Jesus is saying here is what you understand about the Father working is also true of me. I work to bring restoration on the Sabbath day. And really this whole section here from verse 16 through verse 30 is this big connection of Jesus saying, I'm doing my Father's will. And he's really connecting himself to God the Father. Now, obviously we refer to God is our Father today as well, but this is very different from what Jesus is claiming. Mm-hmm. As Jesus is claiming God is his Father, and as people are hearing him say that, they're understanding they're not saying that you know he's a loving Heavenly Father who cares for them or, or made them. He's talking about the fact that I share his attributes and his nature. And yes, you think about Genesis 1.27, there's a part that we do that too. So, We don't have time to get into the distinctions between how does Jesus use this phrase, how do we use this phrase. But as Jesus uses this phrase, they quickly see that as an assault on their concept of God and Jesus claiming himself to be God. And for the rest of this section, Jesus is spending time basically saying, yeah, I am God. I am doing the things that God can do. All Jesus has done, these three signs so far, the cleansing in the temple, talking to Samaritans, is not his own will. He's making the point of, it's my Father's will. And to see that the Father and Son are so connected that to reject the Son means that we're going to reject the Father. Now, that might seem strange to us. I would never say, I only want God the Father and I want to reject Jesus because I'm not really someone who has been stuck under or following the law of Moses for 1,400 years the way that the Jews have at this point. And so they have a concept of God the Father, and they have a concept of what the Messiah is going to be. So for Jesus to be claiming some of that might seem, or definitely does seem, well, you are not the picture of the anointed one or the servant or the ones that we've been reading about from the prophets, the ones that we're expecting. So surely you're not this guy. And so we're going to reject you. But Jesus is often going to say, if you choose to reject me, you're rejecting God as well. Again, that may not be something that we fight as much today, but we can see where the Jews are coming from, from that Mm -hmm. perspective, being so trained in the law and having an understanding of the law that has distorted their view personally. Not Okay, let me rephrase that. The law has not distorted their view. They have distorted what's found in the law and the prophets and the Psalms and what they're expecting the Messiah to be. 
But Jesus says, you've got to accept me if you're going to also accept the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, is going to do things like give life and make judgments. And those are things that God does. And he says those things as, just as God gives judgments, I'm giving judgments. He says in chapter 5 and verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. That's a connection back to chapter 1 and verse 4, where it talks about the Word that became flesh and how the Word was life and the life was the light to men in there, in that passage. You see that the big summary here comes in verse 30, where we're going to find that big connection of I can't do anything on my own. Yeah, it, one of the things that stands out in, in John's Gospel is Jesus emphasizing his deity, and he does that in all of the Gospels, but especially in John. And, and you never find Jesus saying, just coming right out and saying, I am God. But throughout the gospel, you see his teaching leading to that clear conclusion. That's his intention. And it's the, the opposition that kind of brings that out. They say he's making himself equal with God. And what Jesus does is he doesn't like correct their misunderstanding. He, he doesn't say, oh, you got it wrong. <laughs> Let's back up here a little bit. Let me rephrase this so you understand in a better way. He just drives the, the stake deeper down mm-hmm. to say, yeah, yeah, you're, you're on the right track here, and this is why they're rejecting him. What's also interesting, I think maybe this is a little bit stepping on your, your ground here, but he doesn't, he doesn't take glory for himself. He always points it back to the Father. Right, and that's the big conclusion. He's not saying that I'm doing all of this so that I can overstep the Father. He's saying that I am doing what the Father expects of me to do. So again, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A characteristic of the Son is that he is literally feeding upon the Father's will. Do you remember that from chapter 4, that idea? And that's something that we are trying to emulate from Jesus, is that we would have that same type of behavior and understand that thing we do is going to be just and true and good, not because we are God, but because we are trying to do our Father's will. Now, Jesus can back up all of his claims and can back up the the points that he's making from the fact that he's doing these signs and doing these wonders and these works that are proving that point, which is the main idea, but they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to say, you know what, if you speak about yourself that way, all you're doing is just telling about your own. I sometimes preach a sermon from John, and I give seven facts about myself, and one of those facts is that I hold a world record for heaviest deadlift. And so <laughs> when I put that point up on the board and I show all these things that, like, my name is Jeff, I'm from Indiana, my middle name is Wayne, I hold a world record for heaviest deadlift, you know, people usually chuckle when they see number six because most people also know me and that I have, like, no major muscle strength and all I can you know do what I need to do but I am not a workout muscle guy and so if I say that people are going to say prove it get some type of testimony or witnesses to back that up can can Guinness show that and so people are saying about Jesus hey if you're really the son of God you're going to need somebody to back you up about that and that's really what this last section here in this chapter is all about yeah so in verses 31 through 47 Jesus goes on offense the, the previous section is kind of Jesus kind of defending his claims, 
But here he's going to actually bring forth witnesses to testify that his claims are actually true. So like you're mentioning in verse 31, Jesus already knows. He's one, one step ahead of them. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so he's making the point to agree with them. If, if it's just me alone, it's not sufficient to prove me innocent. I mean, does any jury let a thief go free because he says, I didn't do it, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> yeah. not the way it works. Jesus is really being very fair here. And he's conceding that it's not logical to accept what he says just because he says it. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying, I'm lying here. But he's, he's trying to reach them from a logical, reasonable perspective. And so he goes on to say, there is another who testifies about me. And depending on how you count these witnesses, there are four, five, three, however you want to count them, this is the way they break down. He first brings up John's testimony in verses 32 to 35. And he mentions how that these Pharisees sent word to John the Baptist. This is not John the author. This is John the Baptist. They sent messengers to him when he started preaching. Who are you? And, and, and what do you say about yourself? And John himself said, I myself have seen and testified that this, pointing to Jesus, is the Son of God. and. They, he, Jesus also says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he points out that they had some measure of respect for John at some point, mm -hmm. that they listened to him for maybe a short time, but it was a time. Right. And so what changed? And it's interesting that Jesus refers to John as a lamp, because later on we're going to see Jesus talking about himself as the light of the world. If John was just the lamp, what was that lamp pointing towards? It was pointing towards a greater light. Mm -hmm. And so he points to John the Baptist as the one who, the, kind of the first witness of, of who Jesus was. But in verse 36, he says, I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus' works serve as another piece of evidence, another testimony. I think he's talking about his miracles like the one he just did, healing on the Sabbath day. The fact that Jesus could heal to begin with, whether it was the Sabbath day or not, should tell them that there's something to Jesus, that the Father is with him. And the fact that he does that on the Sabbath day should have opened their eyes to see, hey, maybe he has something we need to understand about the Father God. Right. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus does not use the word signs here. He just uses the word works. And, and I read somewhere, take this for what it's worth, but the word signs obviously points to something outside of yourself. But the word works here is used to emphasize the source of Jesus's power. How can Jesus do this work? Because he is using the Father's power. He's The Father is with him. So I think that that may be what he's hitting at. Mm -hmm. In verses 37 and 38, there's a third testimony, and that's the Father's own testimony. And this may be a sub-point of, of Jesus's works, again, depending on how you break it down. But he says, the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. And again, Jesus is doing these things with the Father's approval, 
Maybe this is also a reference to what happened at Jesus' baptism when the Father spoke. The Holy Spirit himself descended from heaven, as we see in John chapter 1, as a dove. The Father himself has demonstrated that he is with Jesus. But then in 39 through 47, Jesus brings up the scriptures as the final testimony, and that Moses wrote these things about Jesus. In verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. Now, these Jews would strongly affirm, we believe in Moses' words. Later on in chapter 6, next week we're going to see that they say, Moses gave us this bread from heaven. So they put a lot of emphasis on Moses. But he's pointing out, look, Moses wrote about me. Think about passages like Deuteronomy 18, where God promises, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses. Or Numbers 21, where the Jews... Uh, are complaining, and God sends serpents to bite them. And and Moses is told to build this bronze serpent, kind of like what we saw in John chapter 3. And so, you know, all of these passages would have come to mind, hopefully, as Jesus is talking about Moses writing about the Messiah coming. Mm -hmm. All of these witnesses are testifying of Jesus. Now, the thing that stands out to me the most in this last part is that Jesus brings out the big guns when he's talking about these witnesses. He doesn't, he doesn't point to, you know, Mr. Smith over here or Joe Schmo and say, hey, he believes in me. No, he talks about God the Father. Mm-hmm. He talks about Moses. He talks about the scriptures that they read every Sabbath in the synagogue. But the real problem here is not like legal technicalities like you might have in a lawsuit, something like that but it's their heart. The reason they reject Jesus is because they're just plain stubborn and they don't have a love for God. Jesus says that in verse 42, I know you that you have no love for God within you. And they're proud. In verse 44, you accept glory from one another. And so while Jesus is taking a very logical approach with them, he's also very blunt about what's really in their hearts. That's the biggest obstacle is they don't want to listen to Jesus because Jesus is violating their traditions. He's making them look bad. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that develop more later on in the gospel as well. So far, so what? I mean, what do we take away from this? The so what, every episode that we talk about John is always going to be something related to John 20, 30, and 31. I mean, so hopefully there has been something in here that causes you to grow in, to, in your belief of Jesus Christ, knowing that believing in his name, you'll have eternal life. But as a podcast, as a program that's somewhat geared more towards trying to encourage and equip people in Bible study, we've been going through you know, the observation, some interpretation stuff in here, seeing what's going on in the text. The application, I think, comes from verse 39 for us, that we don't want to have the same type of attitude that the Pharisee, or I guess that these religious leaders do. They're not specifically called Pharisees, but they're probably around right now. Um, <laughs> this idea, of you pour over the scriptures. Hopefully that's what you're doing. That's what Emerson and I are hopefully doing as well, and are doing as we're trying to learn about Jesus, learn about the plan of God, and how God loves us, and how God wants us to live, and all those things. We're pouring over the scriptures, but as we pour over them, Do we see that they really contain the things of eternal life and that those things are based in Jesus himself? 
And so we want to make sure that we are not going to just be opening the Bible and pouring over the scriptures to prove that we're right. But Bible study is going to actually help us, is going to benefit us if we're willing to hear and respond to God and see that we can only actually have life in Jesus Christ. So that leads us into our challenge. Because we don't want to miss the point of what real Bible study means, it's not just about having the knowledge like the Jews had, but having the right heart. Our challenge to you this week is to, every time you open your Bible, whether it's to do your daily Bible reading, or to read for an episode like this, or to prepare a Bible class or something, say a quick but thoughtful prayer to prepare your heart to receive His Word. And be willing to follow through with that as you read and as you study. If there are things that God is saying that make you uncomfortable or challenge you, like Jesus was doing to doing with the Jews here, be willing to receive that and follow His Word because it has eternal life. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll be looking at two signs and a big test for many of Jesus' followers that's talked about in John chapter 6. We hope you will continue to study John's gospel with us. If you've been enjoying the program, you can help us out by rating and reviewing the show on your various podcast platform that you tune in with, or by sharing it with someone else. Remember, if you have a difficult passage, a book of the Bible you'd like for us to cover, or any Bible study question, you can reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.